I invite your attention now to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you follow as I read, beginning at verse 7. Um, and we'll read through verse 20. Hear now that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired. The very mind of God is black words on a white page. Here we go. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of which hills you can dig copper. You shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then... Your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware. Lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures, and endures, and endures forever. Guys, for the next two sermons, I want us to wrestle with an issue, (laughs) an issue that may be rather sensitive and perhaps uncomfortable for some of you. I I hope not, but it may be. In fact, um, the issue that I want us to look at may may not be an issue for every congregation in the world. It may not even be an issue for every congregation in Shelby County. But it is an issue here. Here's the one I'm, I, wanna, I want us to wrestle with. It's a simple question, guys. Is it possible to be both affluent and faithful to God at the same time? And if so... What would that look like? 
I sure hope it's possible. Because, um, like it or not, we're an affluent congregation. Maybe not the most affluent, but certainly an affluent congregation. Uh, I, I know that some of you resist thinking of yourself as affluent. You say, um, well, I don't drive no Mercedes. Um, that may be true. But you do drive. You drive something. And you most likely drive two somethings. Gang, um, there is indeed a difference between a Mercedes and a Chevy. But <laughs> um, there's not as big a difference uh, between a Chevy and a Mercedes as the difference that exists between a Chevy and an ox cart. Or a Chevy and your feet. Um, 38139... I'm told, is the wealthiest zip code in the state of Tennessee. Ah, oh, but Jimmy, I don't, I don't live, my house is not in, in 38139. Ah, oh, but you have a house, not a hut. And some of you, some of us have two of those things. Um, what is it? I, I forget exactly the details. It goes something like this that, that you're in the top 3% of the world's wealth if you have indoor plumbing and a refrigerator? <laughs> Something like that. Um, you know, guys, I know it's hard for you to, for us to consider ourselves wealthy when you're comparing our, to Tiger Woods or Fred Smith. Um, but I'm going to let you sort all that out. And while you're doing that, I'd like for us to face that issue. Gang, you and I, uh, in fact, you're probably doing it right now. We're probably right now, there's something in your life where you are praying for somebody who's in the midst of some sort of adversity. I know we are. I know Susie and I are. And I bet you are too, praying for somebody who's in some kind of adversity. But gang, my suggestion is that it may be even more necessary To pray for Christians who are in prosperity. You know, Solomon, you remember him, remember him, David's son, the king of Israel? Solomon frequently set those two issues side by side. That is adversity and prosperity. He does it in the book of Proverbs. He does it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He sets them side by side. And the implication is that they're both tests. Adversity is a test. And prosperity is a test. Now, you tell me, which of those do you think is most difficult? Which of those do you think is, is more, has more potential for damage to the soul? Guys, you know as well as I do that it is during those times of prosperity that, that we tend to lose our spiritual balance, our, our spiritual bearings. It's in, it's in prosperity, not in adversity. Adversity, normally, not every time, but normally adversity 
drives us to the Lord. But living in the lap of luxury, that has a very numbing, a very chilling effect on the soul, does it not? Guys, um, the prophet Hosea, Hosea said it like this, and I'm quoting from the book of Hosea. He says, he was talking about Israel, and he said, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And that would be altars to idols. So d- does that mean that, that affluence is, is necessarily or intrinsically evil? I sure hope not. But all I'm saying, guys, is I want to wrestle with that with you. I want to, I want to look at the scriptures and see if it has anything to say to us. Because I'm telling you, the Bible has a bunch of material on this issue with which we can wrestle. And one of the example is our text. But let me state the issue again. Is it possible to be both affluent and faithful to God at the same time? And if so, what would that look like? That's what I want to look at with you from Deuteronomy 8. So I hope you got your Bible still open. Um, And looking at uh, chapter 8, what I want to do is uh, start with, go back to verse 7, and I want to read to you. Verses 7 through 10, again, and, and, and I hope that you'll notice some of the things that, that Moses says in these, um, these four verses. Um, and by the way, he's just giving voice to things that God told him to say. He says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Not a bad land, a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the, for the good land he has given you. Now, guys, did you notice some of the, that, those lang- that language that I tried to emphasize? This is a land of great variety. It's a land where there's no scarcity. Did you, did you see that? It's a land where you will lack nothing. It's a land where you will eat and be full. What you get here is, is a picture of the promised land, and it is a picture of material delight. Um, the promised land is going to be a land that flows with milk and honey. God has, in fact, designed men, designed us to enjoy life in the material world. I bet you didn't expect me to say that, did you? But in case you're not convinced, let me, let me just show you some other things. That is, that God has designed human beings to enjoy life in the material world. How about this? Um, you don't need to turn, but just, just, just think about Genesis 1 and 2. The Garden of Eden. Now remember, it's not the wilderness of Eden. It's the Garden of Eden in which God places Adam. And he says, this is verse 8 and 9. Um, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up 
every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now guys, do you see it? When God uh, put man in a, in a place, he put him in a garden that had great variety, great abundance, all kinds of, all kinds of wonderful, lush uh, things to eat. And he said to him, eat anything you want, except that one tree over there, the one in the tree of knowledge. You know about that. But, but the, my, my point is simply, he, he put Adam and Eve in a place where they were to know freedom and God's rich provision. In fact, Judaism came up a word, came with, came up with a word for that. They called it shalom. It was a, it was a kind of wholeness. Humans are not simply to survive, but to thrive. And God puts at their disposal all of the milk and honey of thriving. Gang, the Garden of Eden was not an empty cupboard. But it was a rich, lush, plenteous setting of beauty and fullness. Eden was a garden. It wasn't a desert. But in addition to that, we turn over a few chapters and we're being introduced to this man, Abraham. Old Abraham. And as we get to know him, one of the first things that we're told about him in chapter 13, verse 2. Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And ladies and gentlemen, I defy you to find one hint in the story of Abraham where Abraham is being chastised for his possession of material wealth. Uh, it is never hinted that it is that it is evil in and of itself or that it had been evilly gotten. In fact, just the opposite. In chapter 14, when he meets up with Melchizedek, remember that, and he and he tithes uh, all of that he that he got. The, the whole idea is that God is behind all of this prosperity that that Abraham is enjoying. Not only in that, not only that, we turn to the book of Exodus, and uh, God is about to bring Israel out of Egypt. And guys, this is so intriguing. Uh, right before they leave, they leave Egypt. God tells them that I want you to go to the Egyptians and I want you to ask them for all their silver and gold. That wasn't their idea. That was God's idea. You go, I want you to, I don't want you to leave Egypt penniless. So you go get all the gold and silver ornaments that they've got and take them with you. That was not Israel's notion. It was God's directive to them. And then you come to Sinai, where the, where the Ten Commandments are given. And one of the Ten Commandments is designed to protect the right to personal and private property. Thou shalt not steal. You don't steal it because it's mine. And God made a provision to make sure that private, that the possession of private property was protected. That, the point I'm making, guys, is that the design of God is one of material delight. Affluence properly obtained, properly enjoyed, and properly used. In, 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 in a number of places and in a number of ways, God lets you know that He's behind this, this, this notion of material delight. 
He is its author. Just like you see here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The promised land was not a desert. When he got ready to make provision for his people, what did he give them? He gave them a land that flows with milk and honey. Because it is not his intent that his people simply survive. But that his people thrive. Now, right after describing that land in verse 11 and following, we get a warning. Look at it. In verse 11, he says, take care. Verse 17, he says, beware. Gang, um, as a result of the entrance of sin in Genesis 3, the, the historic fall. Everything. Everything has been touched. Everything has been marred. Everything has been influenced by the existence and the presence of sin. In a world that is marred by sin, affluence and material delight can be very dangerous. We, we, are, we are very vulnerable to giving mammon the very throne of our lives. The picture in verses 11 through 17 is just what Hosea said it was. Look at verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. Again, have I lost it yet? I, I, I simply wanted to point out that God's intent is to bring us into a promised land that is flowing with milk and honey. But in the midst of that land, there is a warning. And the warning is, be very careful. Be very careful with your management of material delight. Because as you prosper and as you multiply and as everything that you have multiplies, a danger exists. The good of material delight has challenges Built right inside it. And would you like to see one of them? It's right there in verse 17. He says, beware. Lest you say in your heart. My power. And the might of my hand. Have gotten me. This wealth. The one specific that God mentions about the danger of living in material delight is the development of a self-promoting arrogance of the worst kind. And it is the notion that the reason that I am in this material delight is because I'm good. 
I'm good at what I do. And I'm a shrewd businessman. And I have made the right choices and the right moves and the right investments. And I've done right. And I've got this as a result of my power and my hand and my genius and my savvy. And it's there because I'm so good. That's the warning, ladies and gentlemen. But we are warned. That's a kindness of God's. That he has warned us. It doesn't have to be like that. That doesn't have to happen. If we will simply heed the warning. Now, notice what the remedy to the danger is. It's found in verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who, who gives you power to get, to get wealth. Guys, point one was God's intent to give us material delight. Point two was in the midst of that material delight, he issues a warning. And then he says, now, so that this will not take place, here is the remedy. And the remedy is, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Delight in material blessing begins with the recognition of God as the true source of everything that we possess. You see the opposite of that in verse 17. Well, the, the, the right posture is described in verse 18. And guys, I, I just can't tell you how critical is verse 18 to us. That, that we are of, that we are aware that what we have has come to us as a result of God's provision for us. You know, the man that, that everybody likes to quote, David, you know, the man after God's own heart, boy, he sure knew it. He comes to the end of his life, and he's trying to gather all of the, the, the materials to build the temple. You remember that? And in the midst, right before he dies, he says, he says just listen to thee. Uh, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. One more, verse 16, he says, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have been providing for this building, for provided for building you a house for your holy name, all of this abundance comes from your hand and is all your own. All I'm pointing out, guys, is that David got it. Now, I'm not sure that I got it, but David got it. But, gang, if we fail at verse 18, 
the blessing of material wealth putrefies. Um, this, this whole vision of material delight, it goes up in smoke. And we become greedy, selfish, material people. Gang, prosperity at the bottom of it. it it's a matter of grace, not works. Well, what do you mean by that, Jimmy? Well, tell me this, guys. Where did you get all those abilities that you have? Where, where, where did you get that good mind that you've got? Where did you get those opportunities that you have taken advantage of? Where did they come from? Who placed you in the family out of which you came? Guys, take, take my family, for instance. My three girls. Um, their mom and daddy were both college educated. It was always assumed that they would get a college education. We even sent them to private schools for their education. And they had me for a daddy. <laughs> what could be more advantageous? That's just a joke. But, but guys, where did they get those opportunities? Where did they get this, the abilities that they had? Where did they get that? Gang, where did you get yours? You know, you could have been born in the garbage dump in Guatemala City. You could have been born in City Soleil in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. But God put you someplace else. And he gave you abilities and opportunities. Consequently, prosperity in its lowest common denominator is an expression of God's grace to us, not works. Folks, the text goes on. Um, in verses 19 and 20 to tell us the consequences of failing. It says, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will perish. Um, it's interesting that he mentions idols. Um, if we forget verse 18, the result is rather predictable. It's inevitable. Idols. Idols of success and idols of wealth and idols of personal comfort and idols of great variety. And the end result is we perish. Because we become something that's very ugly. You know, interestingly, the, the prophets, particularly the minor prophets, like, like Amos, for instance, Amos lambasts Israel, but not because of their doctrinal or, or their theological heresies. Amos blasts Israel because of her economic immorality. The economic life is a measure of God's blessing, yes. But it is also a measure 
and a mirror of the soul. Given God's blessing, Israel perished. And it's also sad because it, it doesn't have to be like that. All right then. If, if, if prosperity is not essentially and intrinsically evil, how can I manage it and be righteous at the same time? Um, the challenge, I think, before us, guys, is not, is not to cease to be affluent, but it's to manage affluence in the right way. Now, what would that look like? What would managing affluence righteously look like? I have four points, and then we're done. Four characteristics of righteous management of affluence. Number one, it would start with verse 18. It would start with a humility that grows out of the awareness that all that I have is because God has granted grace to me to produce it. It is he that has given me the ability to make wealth. It is a posture. It is a mindset. It is a position. It is a conviction. It is a humility that comes, that grows out of a conviction that I am where I am because God has given me this and that and the other. And it's a token of his grace. I could have been born in Guatemala City, but I wasn't. I was born in... Where I was. That's the first part of it. The second characteristic of the righteous management is a very serious concern for the poor. Gang, I can't tell you how much needs to be said about this one subject. I I mean, I've got 30 minutes worth right here. But, folks, um, primarily... The poor have to be protected from the wealthy. There is so much that is said in the scriptures about the righteous in their relationship to the poor. Um, uh, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Proverbs is full of of mentions of the poor um, and, and, and our responsibilities toward them. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse uh, 28, um, um, uh, verse 8, excuse me, 28, 8. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. Do you see what that says, guys? It says that ultimately all the wealth that's being accumulated uh, is going to find its way into the hands of those who are generous to the poor. Guys, there must be among those of means a great compassion for the powerless, the orphan, the widow, the homeless. Guys, do you know what gleaning laws are in the Old Testament? Uh, Leviticus chapter 19. You know what gleaning laws are? When, When Israel went out to harvest their crops, she was told, you are not to harvest everything in the field. Leave the borders, leave the periphery, leave the corners, because the poor need something to eat too. 
Israel was given laws about how they were to protect and to provide for the poor and the powerless. We are to be people who are empowering the poor to upward movement. Guys, um, I think I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. You know, um, we complain out here about taxes being increased and we don't want our taxes messed with because, because, you know, the government misspends them and all that business. And that's all true. That means that they're misspent. And so a couple of years ago, there was this issue that came up about closing down the med or raising taxes to keep it open. Gang, where do the poor go when they're sick? I don't care what it costs us. We have got to keep the med open. Because we have got to be the people who are making sure that the poor are protected and cared for. So there's, a, there's an attitude, but there, that attitude leads for this rich, deep, profound concern for the poor and the powerless. And our responsibilities is to see them allowed to, to make upward progress like we have. Third, the third characteristic of the right management of affluence is the obligation of justice. Gang, do you know how often God speaks about his love of justice? Justice is a constant concern of his and consequently must be a constant concern of ours. Justice is, is righteousness expressed in society. And we've got to be a people who are making sure that righteousness is performed. Gang, I've been listening to this series of tapes on the Second World War and there's a story in there. One of the, one of the black eyes that existed during World War II is the racial issues and the racism that exists while we were in World War II. We still wouldn't give up our racism in World War II. There's a story that's told about several black soldiers who were, they were moving from one camp to the other camp and I forget the city where they stopped. I think it was Mobile, but it could have been New Orleans. We'll just say New Orleans. They were, they were traveling through from one camp to another camp and they were passing through New Orleans. And uh, there was a, a handful of black soldiers that uh, wanted to eat and they were told that they couldn't be fed except if they go in the back alley and be fed at the back door of the restaurant at the train station. And so there they went to the back alley, to the, to the back door so that they could be fed in the, in the alley at the back door of the train station. And they looked inside the train station and, and they saw seated inside the train station, um, being fed German prisoners of war. And one of these black soldiers wrote a letter to, to Yank magazine and he said, what has gone wrong when these men who are the stated enemies of democracy and we are people who are pledged to defend democracy even with our lives and they can be fed inside the train station and we cannot? Where was the church? Where were the people of God? Where were the powerful? Where were the wealthy? Saying, we will not stand for this. 
Where were the, where was people insisting upon the obligation of righteousness in society called justice? An attitude, a concern for the poor, an insistence upon justice, and then not, fourthly, not losing sight of the suffering that is around us. That is a, a proper sense of grief, not guilt, but a proper sense of grief for the, for the suffering that's around us and, and some kind of effort to try and alleviate the pain that's, that we see around us. Guys. To, to say it summarily, the affluent must connect with the poor and the powerless. We have resources. And our resources are to be used to benefit others. And I would even go so far as to say that the reason that we have resources is so that we can use them for the benefit of those who don't have them. Gang, the rich are not to be liberated from their riches. That's called liberation theology, the liberation theology of Che Guevara. You might have heard of that. We're not to be liberated from the riches, but we're to be liberated from the selfishness and the greed that often accompany the presence of riches and the possession of thereof. And I can tell you this, my brother and sister in Christ, token giving is not going to cut it. Us being throwing a buck at it is not going to get it. Now, I'm not here to tell you what's going to get it for you. But I will plead with you to go to God. Get creative. Let's find out. But let's manage the affluence that God has given us in a way that would please him. Using wealth for self-interest alone is the essence of national immorality. It's also the essence of personal immorality. Gang, I'll close with just a couple of words. A quote from John Piper. All of this that I'm saying today is not gonna, it's not gonna find a receptive heart unless this is, unless something like this is truth in us. John Piper says this, and I'm quoting, The world is not impressed when Christians get rich and say thanks to God. They are impressed when God is so satisfying that we give our riches away for Christ's sake and count it gain. See, guys, the only people who are going to be sensitive to the needs that are around them and the concerns for the poor and are going to give liberally towards meeting needs are people who are ravished by the beauties of Jesus Christ in their own lives. Once that is so beautiful to us, once his finished work is such a treasure to us, then we find separating ourselves from some of our material comforts is no longer as hard as it used to be. But guys, this is a challenge before us as a congregation. People of means people of resources, can we possess them 
and live righteously at the same time? I hope so. Because the alternative, outlined in Deuteronomy 8, is unthinkable. Our Father, I pray that your people might find um, your voice in all this instead of mine, and that they might discover a sense of beauty in all that you've done and provided for us, that we are people of great grace, that having received great grace, we are a people who are rich spiritually, but it hasn't stopped there. You have granted things beyond our wildest imaginations. And thus, Lord God, as those in possession of those things, we pray that you'll be pleased with how they're managed. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.